As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrow and Lisa Abramowitz. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, geopolitics, finance, and investment. Subscribe to Bloomberg Surveillance On Demand on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And always on Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business App. Who could we speak to that could talk about the bench at Morgan Stanley? And that would be, oh, I don't know, Ellen Zentner or, you know, Jim Karen will be on with John Farrow in the next hour. No, that's not the bench. Expert at the benches of Wall Street firms is our Bloomberg. Someday there'll be CEO correspondent. Shanali Basic joins us. Is this a surprise that Mr. Gorman will step aside? The timeline is certainly a surprise. We knew that it would be coming one day. He's been at the helm for a very long time now. And we know that Morgan Stanley has been prepping the bench for a while. Think about how many people have grown up under James Gorman, have left the firm, and the two men under him right now, Andy Saperstein at the Wealth Business and Ted Pick, they're homegrown. They have been there for a long time. They have been at the most pivotal moments of the firm, up and down. That is, a Ted Pick at the Institutional Securities Division really helped make this tough transition from cutting and adding to the fixed income business, for example, help competing as the top prime broker on Wall Street in the equities business as well. And over at the wealth business, Andy Saperstein, former consultant, longtime lieutenant to James Gorman. Now, the question is, and waiting for the headlines on this, yeah. Did they? At what point are they going to announce who is taking over? Well, let me just read the uh, exact statement. This uh, from Gorman at the firm's annual meeting. He said, it is the board's and my expectation that it will occur at some point in the next 12 months. He's talking about his, his departure as chief executive officer and becoming the chair of the board. That is the current expectation in the absence of a major change in the external environment. Also a key question, was this a decision that he made independently for a lifestyle kind of issue? Was this some sort of strategic shift by the board made basically without necessarily his desiring this departure? You know, I think that's an interesting question. It's hard to have any evidence of something like that. James Gorman has just made this firm into a behemoth. Remember, when I started covering Morgan Stanley, they were worth much less than Goldman Sachs. Now they are worth much more. That divide has just increased <laughs> despite many, many doubts. I remember uh, years ago, I had there was a call, a conference call, and you had, um, you had analysts asking why he wasn't raising the bar more for Morgan Stanley. And you had James Gorman stepping back saying, be patient, we've got this. And ultimately he he was right. And so, you know, again, there's been a lot of consistency here, Lisa, when you look at the next level of the firm. And again, I think this is very classic Morgan Stanley fashion. They announce one change, 
they give you some time to absorb it, then they announce the next big move. So it's interesting to me the point about unless there is some sort of shift in the market conditions at a time when people have been talking about a financial crisis that never transpired, and now people are talking almost about stasis or this calm that has really percolated out. Is this viewed as sort of a calm period, a pond with the duck sailing across, even if there's paddling <laughs> underneath, where they can actually make shifts like this without any major disruption and do it easily. Well, how fascinating to talk about this right before people are worried about a potential recession. Um, Morgan Stanley has seen some of the worst days through 2008. They remember what it felt like. So this is some calm, isn't it? That is saying it is calm enough <sighs> to start to transition. And oh. by the way, look how many CEOs are changing on Wall Street. This is the time for the next generation to step. Well, okay, maybe. Paul Davis wrote this six months ago, five months ago for, for Bloomberg. Thank you to the Washington Post for publishing Paul Davies. And he just, it, I, I'll never forget the headline. Goldman Sachs is, quote, far, far behind Morgan Stanley. It's all about asset management, right? It's an eat and Vance thing. I don't know how E-Trades worked out as well. But where does Saperstein fit into that? Because my, my basic take here is Ted Pick's sort of the older guy. He's got the swagger of Morgan Stanley. And Saperstein is watching paint dry, making all the money. Do I have that right? Uh, it's, it's a pretty good characterization of what's going on. Listen, in the trading business, these are a bunch of loyalists. Uh, this goes back to when Colin Keller was there. You yeah, worry yeah. about the traders leaving without a solid person in charge that they trust, that leads the troops. But to your point here on Andy, he also has tens of thousands thousands of financial advisors across the United States. Uh, those are less swashbuckling, let's say, than maybe the traders and investment bankers, but it's steady and uh, and they and they bring in the big bucks, Who like you said. Who decides at any firm mm. who takes over? The board. But remember, as we've been talking about, James Gorman is on that board. Okay, well. fine. He's on the board. But how independent is a Morgan Stanley board versus a guy who many people would suggest is a CEO of the decade yeah. on global Wall Street? I think it's a great question. I, it's my Morgan, only good one of the day, so go with it. Uh, Morgan, Morgan Stanley's board is pretty diverse and very committed. And remember, uh, they it's changed quite a bit in, in recent years. It has talent from the former uh, Securities and Exchange Commission, uh, from Japan, given their deal with the MUFG during the financial crisis. So it is quite independent relative to a lot of what you're seeing on Wall Street. And that's what kind of makes this succession plan successful in the eyes of Wall Street. It's consistent and it is uh, it is broad and it is diverse in the way it's being sorted through. If you're just joining right now, the news of the day, Morgan Stanley CEO James Gorman is planning to step down within 12 months. This he made in an announcement at the annual meeting. Uh, the shares of immediately popped lower about 1.7%. They've retraced a lot of that down near just uh, six-tenths of a percent as people digest the news. It does seem like, Shanali, this has been in the works. This has been something they've been planning for, and they pulled the trigger a bit earlier. Is there a sense of shift within the strategy of this company going forward, or do you think it's stay the course, keep the homegrown talent, and keep on plugging away. It's already changed so much. To your point with the big acquisitions, they've always had wealth as a huge driver, asset management. But the asset manager, again, five, six years ago, you couldn't see Morgan Stanley becoming more than a trillion dollars in asset management. That has changed, and it changed quickly with acquisitions. So they've, they've already changed. The question is, if they choose oh. one man or the other, which part of the bank could suffer from any potential attrition or concerns around who's leading. Off the BQ screen, Goldman Sachs, 1.03 price to book. Morgan Stanley and James Diamond, like 
And I, I'm sorry, the guy is so modest that he's underplayed what he did with managing money. I mean, that to me is just the, the massive theme here. And you, you've said that he will stay as an executive chairman? Yeah, he's going to be chair. What do they do? What do they do? What do executive chairmen do? <laughs> they sit around and they make sure that nothing goes wrong and they come back if, it, if things do go wrong. I mean, listen, okay. the initial market reaction tells you a lot. He's mm. iconic uh, at the helm of Morgan Stanley. He's changed the firm more yeah. um, than any other bank has changed in the last decade. Chanelle, thank you. She is our chief Wall Street correspondent. There's no other way to put it. Appropriate to speak to Ms. Mizra now ahead of Global Rates, TD Securities, and we do this with the 210 spread, 60 basis points, her great call of curve inversion a good year and a half ago. Priya, good morning. You are focused not on 10-year, not on 2-year, but in the belly of the curve at 5 years. Why are you suggesting dynamics in the 5-year would be a more attractive place to be? Sure. So I think it's all about uh, how far you are from the first rate cut and where is the Fed going to cut those rates to? You know, I still think we're about six months away from the first rate cut. In fact, the risks are that they don't even cut this year. They start to cut next year. They're so hyper-focused on inflation. They are looking for a slowdown. So I think they might be a little late. But once they start to cut, we think they're going to cut a lot more than what's priced in. I mean, the market's pricing in the, uh, you know, what we're calling the uh, the trough rate, which is the end point of those cuts at 3%. I mean, 3% is actually higher than the Fed's estimate of neutral rate. So the market's not pricing in a recession, far from it. I think the market's pricing in normalization. If we actually do enter a recession, and in our view, it's going to be a recession, you know, because of the bank lending standards, because of the lagged impact of rate hikes as, as the consumer savings buffer runs out. And now we might even have fiscal drag. I think the only way to get a debt ceiling deal is to get that fiscal drag. So, you know, as the economy slows down, I think the Fed's going to cut a lot more. But if the cuts are six months out, out. I think it's a little tricky to be in the very front end. But if you're too far out, then, uh, uh, you know, uh, there's essentially a right. lot of things that can move long end rates. I think that five year is sort of the sweet spot. Three year, five year rates, I think those are actually very attractive because they're positioning for the Fed whenever they start to cut, uh, just this idea that they're going to cut a lot. Post pause, whenever that is, where is the 10 year yield? So I would say the the tenure is benefiting a little bit from the fact that there's significant inflows into bond mutual funds. You know, once the pause happens, I think we all look at what's next. I don't really buy the skip idea because the economy doesn't move. Um, you know, it's, it's not that volatile. I think right now we're seeing the slowdown as it starts to build up steam. I think it's going to lose momentum really fast. So I don't buy the skip and then rehike. I think then we'll be all focused on when the rate cuts happen. I mean, we're we're looking at the tenure below three percent by year end at, at two and a half by next year. So the 10-year will also have a significant move. I just like the five-year a little bit more right now because it's more sensitive to economic data. We've been talking about the resilience in retailers. We've been talking about the resilience in deer sales. We've been talking about the fact that a lot of these companies have been able to pass along price increases, which is one reason why perhaps people are rethinking the view that you just put out there, that it's unlikely for the Fed to cut rates significantly in the next 12 to 24 months. Uh, Michael Hartman over at Bank of America said that the biggest pain trade the next 12 months is a Fed funds rate rising to 6% instead of 3%. How realistic is that in your mind? 
So I can see this. So we're actually looking for one more hike. So we're looking for five and a half. You know, just listening to Fed speak, I think they would rather pause and stay on hold for longer than actually try and push the last. You know, what's 50 basis points among friends? I mean, they can go from five and a half to six. Remember, they're also doing QT. So I think it's a high bar for them to keep going. But I think it's also a very high bar for them to start to cut. Because remember, they're looking for four and a half on the unemployment rate by year end. I think if we're at four and a half by year end, we're in a recession. The economy is slowing down pretty drastically. But the Fed might say, yes, this was in our forecast. So I think they stay on hold longer. But I, I would agree. I think if inflation uh, increases somewhere, I mean, the Fed's telling us that they want to slow things down. They don't see the slowdown. I think they're going to keep hiking. And as a result, they're going to overdo it. I think we're already in restrictive territory. It just takes a while for different parts of the economy to slow down. I mean, we're not getting that big shock that can slow down everything at the same time, which is why I think it's so tricky to trade this market. We move 10, 20 basis points on not a whole lot of news. I think you just have to be nimble and sort of start to step in. We stepped in yesterday. We were now a little bit long uh, duration here. We get another sell-off here. I think the technicals right now with all the FDIC sales, I think we should think about that. That as well. It's 100 billion that the FDIC is selling off fixed income paper. That's like new supply that's coming in. I think that's part of the reason why we've risen in, in rates. But you're supposed to start to think about hedging some of those risk assets. If the economy slows down, I think that's a pretty big pain trade as well. If the Fed does raise rates one more time, is that enough to break the backs of some of these regional banks that are drawing on some of the emergency lending facilities still to this day, even though the crisis, if it was one, has simmered off? So, I, you know, the, the deposit outflows have, have stabilized, but they're still continuing to leave banks. And I think that's going to continue to happen. It's very hard for banks to compete with deposits when money market funds are giving you, you know, 5%, 5 and a quarter. And if the Fed continues to raise rates, I think that gap continues to be wide. So I think the regional banks are still in trouble, not so much because of massive outflows, but their entire business model, if they're funding from the Fed at 5%, yeah. it's very hard to fund your assets, which you bought at 2%. So I think that's going to be a slow drag for the rest of this year and beyond. Priya, you're outrageous when you talk not only about inversion, but large inversion. You're also very lonely. Can you frame out, given the cards, and I, you know, let's assume optimistically we're going to get beyond the debt idiocy. Great. Can you frame out a 6% three-month T-bill, 6% LIBOR, SOFR, other short-term rates? No one's looking for that. All my radar's up. No, that's true. I think the, the big pain trade, really, another pain, pain trade is if inflation remains high. I mean, the tips market, it's the best indicator of market expectations of inflation. I think it's extremely mispriced. It's sub 2% in the near term. So I think the market's saying somehow magically inflation's going to come down, which is why the Fed will not raise rates. What if inflation becomes extremely sticky? That was the biggest aspect of our inversion call, was inflation is very slow moving, extremely lagging. And so if inflation actually stays high, there's your case for that 6% Fed funds. But does that move the five-year or the 10-year? In fact, the more the Fed raises rates, the more they'll have to cut. Because I have to think they take rates to you know, restrictive territory, then they keep it there for a while till things slow down. And that's going to mean that they're going to have to be a lot more accommodative when they start to cut rates. What's 50 basis points between friends? That's my takeaway from that conversation. What's 50 basis points between friends? Priya Mishra of TD. Priya, wonderful to catch she up with you. She can solve the debt crisis. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority. 
by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs, to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. We're in Washington. A director at Veda Partners, Henrietta Trace, with serious Capitol Hill cred. Let's uh, move, translate the reality of this Friday, Henrietta Trace. And that's the idea of recess. Ready, set. There's a great crisis. Wait, Senator Schumer's going to say, no, we're going to recess. So we're running out of money. You and I have been in the cash room at the Treasury. We're literally going to run out of gold cash notes. And the senator from New York is saying, recess? It's incredible. You can really um, watch the Treasury Secretary. You can watch the both bracket banks and their predictions, but you can actually set your watch to the congressional calendar to figure out when they're going to pass a debt ceiling bill. That's what I do. Um, and it works every time. Just pay attention to the congressional recess schedule for sure. What does it say right now? Right now, it says that we're probably going to see bill text on Sunday, Monday morning, maybe. Um, Speaker McCarthy will file the bipartisan bill that he and President Biden's team reach uh, over this weekend. They will hopefully not vote on a bill in the House until Wednesday or Thursday of next week. Anything before that, and I'm very anxious about a tarp-like moment where the bill will fail, because uh, the House is moving first here, which means the Democrats on the House side who historically provide the bulk of the votes and the critical votes for a debt ceiling hike are not going to have political cover from the Democrats in the Senate having voted first. So we're going to see the House move first. Um, and I hope that there will not be a vote until Wednesday or Thursday of next week. At that point, Senator Schumer could call the caucus back. He has indicated that he will call them back within 24 hours notice. But 11th hour in D.C. really does mean the 11th hour. And they could well not come back until Tuesday, May 30th, two days before the X date and pass the bill in the Senate next Tuesday or Wednesday. Well, that's what I'm bracing our investors for. That's what I'm expecting. Henrietta, to that point, what is the risk that there is a technical default because there is a mistake that someone mistimes this, that there is a bill that gets rejected or intransigent members of a party? I do not think that there is any risk of that. Uh, to be honest, I am afraid of a TARP-like vote in the early part of next week. If Speaker McCarthy puts a bill on the floor Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, I think the odds of a failed vote are about 40 percent. But that's a good week before we actually need the bill to pass. I think that's your biggest risk point. After that, I understand there's a lot of hay being made about, hey, the bill needs to sit for 72 hours. We need 10 days to get it through. If you're from the Senate, if you're from the House, if you've seen these bills come into law before, they can work all night long and get this done. And in fact, they will. I think the risk of default is 2%. Uh, I don't buy the hype. I have not bought the hype uh, this entire process. You guys know. Um, I, I don't think there's a risk of default. So then why all the hype made by Congress members, made by the president himself? Why all the discussion about how this is not anywhere close, given the fact what has changed over the past two weeks? I mean, quite honestly, if, if you want me to get on my soapbox for just a little minute, the last time we had a balanced budget was under the Clinton administration. And instead of using that 
surplus to pay down the deficit. What do we do in 01? We pass tax cuts. What do we do in 03? We pass more tax cuts. We blow out the deficit, continue doing that into the Obama years, did it again in the Trump years, $7.8 trillion worth of deficit hikes. And now all of a sudden we're in the Biden administration post-COVID with looming $3 trillion tax expirations happening in 2026. And we're talking about $500 billion worth of deficit reduction. It is a political show that is designed to say, hey, the Republican Party cares a lot about federal spending. They are fiscal hawks. They care about the deficit. No new taxes. And Democrats have to explain what it is that they support spending money on. TANF or working family aid, uh, the energy department, the uh, energy tax credits that were just passed. It's it's really just about scoring political points. That's what it's always been. And that's where we are in this charade. And now we're at the 11th hour. So we're going to stop posturing and actually vote on the bill. I would suggest the charade began, I believe it was in New Hampshire, with George Bush Sr., where he got run over on the tax verbiage that we've been living for years and years. Let's assume that tax verbiage doesn't change. So what happens next? Obviously, everybody's going to want a tax cut. Everybody wants a free lunch, right? Better believe it. So in 2025, right after this next presidential election cycle, the entirety of the 2017 tax cuts on the individual side expire. The salt deduction comes back in, but all the individual tax rates go back to their 2017 levels. So at that point, we're probably going to blow out the deficit again by temporarily extending those packages uh, for another year or two, just like we did in 2010 and again in 2012. Um, if there is a red wave in the 24 election, what you can see is a material reconciliation bill that is basically a repeat of 2017. That was a $5 trillion tax bill, $1.5 trillion, of which was deficit financed. So you can very easily see that all over again, although this time it was more expensive in 2026. Rinse and repeat. Can't wait. Henry Trace there, Aveda Partners. Joining us on Jordan Rochester of Nomura. Jordan, we could do a one-hour conversation here. We don't have time for that. I'm going to go at rapid speed. John and Lisa are going to jump in as well. What is the significance of Renminbi out past seven? Once again, we visit through seven. It's been ages since it's seven yuan per dollar. What is the symbolism of 7.01 yuan CNY? Well, for market psychology, it's a big deal. But for us, we think that actually maybe it's the sort of 7.25 to 7.30 level is where the PBOC will be more uncomfortable. We have had a statement, of course, today saying that they want to reduce speculation in the currency market. We've seen that sort of statement before, but that's kind of why we've seen CNH rally a little bit today. But for us, the, the momentum in the Chinese economy has changed quite significantly from what we hoped it would be, what the market hoped it would be just a few weeks ago. And that has been really driving the, the renminbi underperformance. But it's also the, the U.S. side of things as well. We've had more hawkish statements from some of the regional Fed governors. John actually flagged a few of them from Logan yesterday, for example, and Mester. And that's helped the Fed pricing adjust as well. So we have less rate cuts price for the Fed this year, too. Combine that together, we're looking for 730 in dollar CNH by middle of July. That's quite a quick move in the grand scheme of things. We've been kind of been in a low volatility environment. A lot of people had actually got quite bored at putting on sort of CNH risk, and we're looking at other proxies for it in the G10 or in EM. It wasn't really the scenario for us. Uh, we think that actually it's going to have a big move to come. Jordan, a lot of people now starting to think about maybe going the other way in the FX market, leaning into some dollar strength after that big consensus view built up over the last few months off the back of what's happened with the data, just subtle shifts that you've identified. Jordan, can you identify the best way to play that through G10 at the moment? 
Yeah, absolutely, John. And the one thing this market keeps reminding us is you can't lean back. You can't say, I've got this long-term, medium view of Euro upside, which we do, and relax. You can't just crack out the popcorn, get the nachos, and watch the film. You have to be active and, and respond to events. And what's happened here is the data in Europe has really underwhelmed. I, I thought at first we could ignore it, John. I thought the factory orders falling lower, that's something that maybe could be corrected in the next month. But what we've actually started to see is the more forward-looking signals, such as the ZEWs, those sort of centix index in Europe, they've also been turning lower as well. So the momentum's gone. We're not short euro dollar. For us, we, we think the better trade is short cable. Uh, so why is that? It's because, first of all, next week we've got UK CPI, and we think there's going to be a big drop in that number. We could actually go below 8%. We're, we've been above 10% for roughly around seven months or so in the UK. It's been quite painful for the consumer, 10% double-digit inflation. Hopefully next week we get that sign that the Bank of England has done enough and we get that below 8%, 7.9% our team's looking for. If we get that, John, the pricing for the Bank of England, which is around about 45 basis points for the next two meetings or so, that might head lower. We think there's just one more rate hike to come. So it should be more towards 25 basis points to 30 basis points. George, I love how you describe people getting bored as they put on one trade for too long and then just switch it over to something else. It sounds like basically a junior high school version version of, uh, version of uh, macro trading. I'm just wondering from your perspective, whether this is basically going to be the most painful chop, swipe down, John, <laughs> the most painful chop that you can possibly imagine, just because it is so tough to stick with any one trade for a considerable period of time. I think it's quite like 2021, which was a really difficult year for us. I remember it quite well. 2020, we had the vaccines invented, the euro rallied, we got to 123 dollar weakness. Then we got to the beginning of January and Joe Biden's Democrats, they won those Senate seats in Georgia. And we had a 3% swing higher in the dollar. It caught us off guard. It caught a lot of people off guard. The market was pretty much overly positioned for dollar weakness at the time. I think that's kind of where we got to. Most client meetings, not recently, but about two weeks ago, it was, we agree. We think euro goes higher. We think the pound goes higher. We think the yen goes higher. That's now changed quite substantially with these data surprises and market moves. And I think it's a lot more uncertain out there. It's going to be a bit more like 2021, I think, where for nine months of that year, we had a zigzag in the dollar. So the dollar went up for the first three months. Then it went down for the next three months. Then it went up again in the three months after that. It was only in uh, Q4 2021 when we got a pure sense that the gas supplies that uh, Vladimir Putin was essentially restricting before he invaded Ukraine really added to that dollar uh, strength. And also we had the inflation spike in the US at the time as well. So we're kind of in that sort of mean reversion place in the G10FX. And that's the tricky part for this year so far. Jordan, is that why you're only willing to make a short-term tactical call right now with regards to this strong dollar? John, to be tactical is important. You have to make money here and now. So yes, we always have our eye on the next one month horizon. And then after that, we think about the long term. The long term is, I think Euro does head higher again, John. The terms of trade are fantastically moving in Euro's favor. It suggests Euro should be 115 to 120. So medium term, I haven't turned massively bearish on the Euro. But in the very short term, I look at those Fed cuts that are priced in, John, roughly around 45 basis points yeah. now, let's say. I think that should be more towards 25. And then perhaps the market might start to fade that. You know, my question, John, is if you're with Aston Villa and you're sitting in the cop at Liverpool, yeah. I mean, medium term really doesn't matter. I'd suggest that if you were an Aston Villa fan that you don't sit in the cop end. Jordan, you're not doing that, are you? Maybe not. I can't Maybe confirm. Maybe he is. 
You think that in a villa shirt? I'm not sure what colour tie I'll be wearing. <laughs> I think they'll be kicking him back out. This is fun. I mean, Aston Villa wasn't supposed to be fun this year, and it is. Like, now they're playing really well. It's fun. Jordan, you must be happy. It's fantastic. I mean, we were fighting relegation not long ago. So this is just to be in the top end of the table and actually look at, you know, five, six, seven, eight and think maybe we've got a chance of being there is fantastic. I've got to talk to Tom about championship playoff finals in the next week or so, Jordan. So wish me luck. Jordan Rochester of Namora. Nobody ever says make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs, to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Forget about the theory. Mostly for some people, it's about missing a bull market off the October lows. For others, it's recalibrating. And I'm going to suggest for many others, it's just the fear and maybe being in cash. David Balin advises this morning, Chief Investment Officer for City Global Wealth. You had the courage to be in the markets throughout all of this process. Reassess the courage right now. How do you have the courage to be in a market after this run to 42.22? Well, it's not a cheap market, Tom, and, and, and that's not really the point. If you take a look at what's happened right over the last year, this is a perfect example of why market timing is absolutely terrible. And it's a question then of what you own and not when you own it, right? So it's what's in the equity portfolio. For a long time, last you know 12 months, we've been defensively positioned right into, into companies that are high quality with dividends and all of that, and that's paid off. And now you're seeing a rotation, right? And you've talked about this on your program into AI and tech, which makes sense because you're going through a revolutionary period of time, right? Getting exposure to these stocks and more importantly, getting exposure to the companies who will use these this technology, right, is going to be extremely important. And that should be in one's portfolio. And then there are pockets of value that are still out there, right? I mean, take a look at what financials look like today. If you really ask yourself a year from now whether or not financial stocks will be higher, you have to imagine that they're well capitalized, they're going to they're going to tolerate what's going on in the market now and the, and the move away from deposits, but ultimately this is essential to our economy and it it should not be marked down 30%. So there are things to buy and the most important thing is to look forward as you go about buying them. Well, let's talk about allocating to some of those themes. The answer to this question, I hear it a lot on financial news programs. How much should I allocate to one thing? How much should I allocate to another? Isn't that just highly dependent on who you are, how old you are, where well, you are in life? Yeah, I mean, obviously, when you do you know, wealth planning and financial planning, you have to determine you know, what your spending patterns are and you have to actually have a plan, right? But regardless of that, if you think about how a portfolio should be constructed, an equity portfolio should be one's best ideas, right? In exposure to different markets at different times. And there are some you know, great and obvious ideas. A great example today, which we never talk about, right, because we're so focused on the U.S. and on AI, is just the fact that right now you've got you know, foreign stocks at their cheapest level, right, as cheap as they've been since back to 1935. You've got the dollar at its highest level and rising recently, right, due to the rates. And yet no one talks about putting money overseas right now. And I think it is a gimme. And that's an example of where, you know, you do asset allocation. But it's not. And so what's going to happen, I think, over the between now and the end of, of you know, 
several months from now is people are begin focusing on 24 and they're going to want to have higher equity allocations than they do right now. Have you been basically building your equity uh, slice or are you basically even weight when it comes to places like private credit that still offer a tremendous amount of yields? Let's let's talk about that. So we, we've been slowly moving up our equities, right, in terms of the our, our allocation to them. But the point you just made is extraordinary. And again, you know, think about it from an investment store to point of view. If you can get in the fixed income market, an equity-like rate of return and sustain that for the next three to four years, should you do it? Absolutely. And private credit is a great example. You know, bank loan products, you know, a variety of mortgage-related REITs, things like that are yielding between 12 and 14% due to the illiquidity right now. And the credit risk that was there in 08 is not there now. These are the kinds of things that should be put into portfolios on the fixed income side. The other thing I wanted to mention is that, because you've touched upon this in a variety of your programs this week, is people who are focused on deposit rates or focused on one-month yields are going to miss the fact that now is the time to move their duration out and actually build resilient portfolios and fixed income that hold, for, for their cash portions, hold those rates for longer. Given that that's your belief, you think that rates are going to come down. Is this period of time a golden period, ironically, even though the chop feels not particularly golden in any way, shape, or form? But- are you seeing this period where you have an opportunity for outsized returns that won't come again after this period ends, after rates return and normalize? Right. That's right, Lisa. I mean, we, you just talked about it in private credit. You're going to see the same thing in the bond market because we are investing into a slowing economy. There's no doubt that the, the Fed action, what's gone on with banks, you know, in fact, even the resolution of the debt agreement that you know, we're talking about this coming week, maybe, um, that's going to be uh, you know, take away stimulus. It's going to take liquidity out of the marketplace after it, after it happens. So all of that's going to slow the economy. So we're, we're now talking about investing for 2024, looking over the horizon of the slowing economy to what the market will look like next year. And, and that's really what's going on in the markets right now, as far as we're concerned. David, you mentioned opportunities abroad, and you threw out some interesting numbers, and I just want to work through them with you. Yeah. DAX is at a record high today. Eurostox 50 year today is up close to 20%. Someone's buying it. Oh, no, I'm talking about emerging market equities specifically. Oh, you're going right. to yeah, EM specifically. Right, right, okay. right, EM specifically. No, so obviously those there. markets. Right. Let's yeah. go there. What's right. happening there? Because Chinese data started to disappoint and some people are reluctant to chase that story. What is it about EM for you that works? Well, what works is that you have a lot of companies, right, that are operating, whether it's in Brazil or in China, right, where the earnings stories are actually, you know, picking up markedly. You know, we saw a bunch of good even earnings from internet stocks in China and they're being completely ignored, right? So we're overweight in that market because- you're buying there at an incredibly good valuation. In Brazil, same thing. You're buying when the, you know they've done a great job. Real yields there are 9%. Their rates are going to come down. They're a beneficiary of the Chinese market, right? And they're going to and they're going to benefit, I think, in terms of their stock price appreciation. But you have to do this in anticipation. When it's not fun to do it, that's when you have to do it, right? And that's the same thing you were talking about with AI, which is you have to think about which companies are going to benefit by by building an AI department the way they've built their IT department. Those companies that decide to use it are going to be the beneficiaries of it, and you can identify them. How do you identify them right now? Well, you think about uh, just just think about this. Um, you think about let's say a, a consulting company. I can't name the you know whatever. How, how is they might not be able to right? How is there how how is it that they're going to right modify the business that they're going to provide to clients? They're going to teach AI. They're going to help cl- companies build in AI. So in the consulting industry, you're going to find that companies that actually go out and you know build models using AI in terms of financial services. And you can identify who's doing it because they're going to talk about it. My, my joke internally is that AI will tell you who's using AI. And, and that's what I mean literally. You'll be able to see which companies are actually using it. And that, to me, is going to be a determinant in, uh, in how do you go about investing. Let's go back to Walter Riston, 
who would say that U.S. multinationals have international exposure. There's a small startup in Cupertino where something like 60% of revenues of Apple is foreign revenues. Can we go back to the old days where people can buy U.S. multinationals as a foreign proxy? I'm not exactly sure because of the valuation difference. Let's flip it around and talk about you know energy stocks in uh, in Europe. You know they're saying at a forty percent discount to energy stocks in the U.S. Which would you rather own? They're both multinational with a big dividend. That's exactly correct. So my view is you have to be conscious of valuation. Right right now, you know everyone is very focused on the U.S. When we look at 2024, I think people are going to be focused on global investing much more than they are in U.S. investing. Interesting. David, this was great and wonderful. I've said this a few times this week already, but great to see you in person. Yeah, I love the fact it's that we're all together. Long, yes, exactly. It's, 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 it's fantastic. And, and Jonathan, you need to invest in the company that makes a dessert spoon. I agree. I think that's Got to make right. that happen. Is that at the top or is it's that a, on the side? It's just at the, the top. You're doing good. Yeah, yeah that's right. Thank you, buddy. Doing I'll well. keep doing that. Appreciate it. <laughs> I like the small ones. David Bailey, a city global web. Appreciate it. Subscribe to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, TuneIn, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts.